one of the things that we typically do every week as a church is open up the Bible and read a passage of Scripture and then just examine it and take the time to hear from God. God, what do you want us to know about you, what you've done, uh, what your expectations are of us? And, and uh, that's something we, we just we look forward to, and so that's what we're about to do. First uh, Samuel is toward the beginning of your Bible. Uh, it's, a, it's a historical book, describes the early history of uh, the nation of Israel, and we're kind of parachuting right into the middle of that as we come to chapter 13. So would you join me in chapter 13, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 15. Saul was so many years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for so many and two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring, me, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. This is God's word. Would you join me now in prayer? God, you are the king of all the earth. And just like in this passage... You direct the course of the armies of heaven and the armies of the earth. You're in control. 
And God, we don't always understand how that plays out, but we acknowledge your sovereign lordship over all things, and we bow before you recognizing that you alone have all the authority and deserve all the glory. Father, we confess that this week, even this week, even just this morning, we have not given you the glory due your name. We have fallen short of your standard of obedience. And Father, for that we're sorry. We have no excuse. We come with no uh, retribution. We cannot pay for what we've done. Lord, we throw ourselves on your mercy and we rejoice that you sent your son, King Jesus, into the world to die the death that we deserve to die, to live the life that we were supposed to live, and to rise again from the dead, bringing with him captives. Those of us who were servants of the kingdom of Satan and now have been brought out as the children of God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness that we enjoy, knowing that even though we didn't deserve it and even though we didn't do anything to pursue it, you have offered us the free gift of salvation. Lord, we know that throughout our world there are millions who do not know the name of Jesus. And I pray that today would be the day where they turn and repent and believe in him. Lord, we know that there may be some even in this room today, probably are, who uh, are undecided or uh, unbelieving of the gospel, and I pray that today you would just change hearts, Father, that you would do what you do. Lord, we pray as well for your mercy in our world's affairs. We ask that you would uh, bring about peace in Ukraine, that you would stop the uh, advances of the tyrant, and that your name and your glory would be proclaimed and that peace would prevail. Father, we pray for our nation, for President Biden and for our uh, uh, Congress and, and Senate and uh, for uh, the courts and, and for all the various institutions that you've graciously allowed in our lives to keep us safe and to promote prosperity. And Father, I pray uh, that in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it, that you would continue to pour out your grace upon our land, not so that we can enjoy largesse and, and to uh, just feed our desires, but so that we can continue to preach the gospel and bring souls to Christ. And so, Father, we pray for our leaders that you would, uh, that you would just bring them uh, to yourself and that you would cause the decisions that they make uh, to be honoring to you. We pray especially for uh, the Supreme Court nomination process that's going on right now. Lord, we pray for mercy and for, uh, for righteousness to prevail. Father, I also want to pray for those who can't be here this morning, Freddie Trevino, Ann Duggar, uh, Carrie Woodring, I'm sure there are, uh, Shirley Powell, there are others, and Lord, they're suffering. And Lord, we know that you are with them and that you comfort them, and I pray that your comfort would prevail in their hearts, that you would protect them from depression and discouragement, and that you would remind them that you love them as your precious, precious children. And Lord, I pray that as we have opportunity, you would send us to them by your grace. Uh, Father, be honored with everything that goes on this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On December 27th, 2017, 75-year-old Charlene Murphy 
visited Vanderbilt University Medical Center for a routine MRI. She should have been finished in a few hours, but instead, she died. Miss Murphy didn't die of natural causes. Her vital organs were paralyzed by a dangerous drug she should have never received. And now, four years later, one of her nurses, Redonda Vaught, who administered the drug, is standing trial. If convicted, she faces the possibility of years in prison. Now, what is so significant about this case is that Miss Vaught was not intending to kill Charlene Murphy. This was not a case of intentional homicide. No, in fact, prosecutors even agree that she was actually attempting to do her job, following a typical protocol for dealing with patients who are too anxious to remain still during the MRI procedure. What happened was that Miss Vaught, when she approached an electronic medicine cabinet to, receive, uh, to, uh, to pull out a drug uh, to help with the patient, she typed in the letters V-E, hoping to obtain Versed, a sedative, but instead, and in spite of numerous electronic warnings about the potential dangers, she pulled Vecuronium, a paralyzer that can be deadly by mistake. Miss Vaught admitted that she had become complacent in her job and was distracted on the day of the accident. But her lawyers argue that overriding various warnings in the pharmaceutical dispensing systems at the average hospital are a part of everyday life. I'm sure that's true. Nurses are strung out. They're exhausted from the pandemic and more likely than ever to make these kinds of honest mistakes. Now, for those of us, most of us who are not medical professionals, I mean, think about how prone we might be to make a similar clerical error. I mean, have you ever made a clerical mistake at your job? Mistyping information, mixing up words that sound alike. It's just part of life for many of us. I'm sure if I were a nurse, this is the sort of thing that I might do, which is one of the reasons I'm glad I'm not one. Naturally, though, many nurses are concerned about the precedent this trial is setting. Maureen Kennedy, the editor-in-chief emerita of the American Journal of Nursing, called this case every nurse's nightmare. Another nurse told Kaiser Health News, quote, there are two kinds of nurses, those who assume they would never make a mistake like that, and the second kind are the ones who know this could happen any day, no matter how careful they are. This could be me. I could be Redonda Vaughn. In medicine and in many other high-stakes professions, a tiny mistake can produce a deadly result. A soldier or a doctor or a pilot or a firefighter can make an error that seems small, that seems understandable, that seems excusable, but ends up destroying lives. And in this reality, I find a similarity to all of life. We go through life minimizing our choices. We dismiss everyday decisions as insignificant. But in reality, our choices, all of them, are extremely significant because they impact the lives of people who will last forever. We make little compromises. We indulge in subtle gradations of complacency or apathy, and it seems as though it's not going to impact anyone, but the results can be way more damaging than any of us anticipate. This morning, that's what we see happening in the case of King Saul. He started out so well. 
He appeared to have a lot of promise, but one day he makes a decision that, from a certain perspective, makes political and religious sense. I mean, it seems merely ceremonial, practically insignificant, but which will blow up in his face in tremendous fashion, and actually, from God's perspective, is a grave and inexcusable error. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. He was supposed to wait for the prophet to provide for him a word from the Lord, but he disobeyed. This passage is about obedience, the necessity for complete, meticulous, reverent adherence to the commands of I am and the consequences of a failure to obey. Saul is going to learn the hard way that in spite of past success, in spite of impressive appearance, in spite of religious pomp and circumstance, what God really wants from the leader of his people is obedience. And so today I'd like for us to consider four R's that we can pull from this passage that kind of like a pirate, I guess. I just thought of that. Sorry, back on track. Four R's that demonstrate this reality. The first R is reasons. Reasons. I'm going to show you three reasons for disobedience. Now, these reasons come from Saul's own mouth in verse 11, but before we get to them, we kind of need to ramp up, clear up some confusion, and I need to kind of tell the story as well. So uh, notice with me, first of all, in verse 1, this confusing uh, sentence that we're Given. Saul was dot, dot, dot years old. That's what my Bible says when he began to reign. And he reigned dot, dot, dot and two years over Israel. What in the world is going on with that? Did they just forget to put something in? Uh, if you're carrying around a copy of the New International Version or the uh, New American Standard Bible, it reads, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 42 years. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Why does my Bible say that? If you're reading from the New King James or the King James Version, it reads, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and so on and so forth. What? Which one's correct? Uh, okay, the short answer is, each one of these translations, and I know you don't like to hear this stuff, each one of these translations is, uh, they're, they're doing a little bit of guesswork in order to... Uh, give you something that makes sense, and we just don't know which one is right. The longer answer, and I might lose a few, uh, a few of you for a second, but I'm going to come right back, okay? Uh, the longer answer is that the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew text underlying your English version, is missing these two numbers for some reason. We don't know why. So the King James translators, they try to make sense of what's there, even though it's historically impossible. I mean, Jonathan, Saul's son, is already of an age where he's able to lead the armies of Israel. Uh, it, it doesn't make grammatical sense. The New King James and the King James, they, they are kind of on the same page. Other translations, they actually borrow from ancient Greek or Syriac versions of the Bible, uh, but evidence suggests that those versions sort of made up a number anyway. So that's why you have these discrepancies, and folks, it's just the way it is. Okay, so I wish I could tell you something more uh, concrete, but that's just the way it is. So if I lost you, I'm coming back, back, back to the meaning of the text now, all right? But I just know that many of you might have been confused about what's there in verse 1. 
So once we kind of shake away the cobwebs of verse 1, we learn that Saul has chosen to raise a standing army of 3,000 men. Two-thirds of them are with him. Uh, they stay in this city of Michmash, just a couple miles north of his hometown, west of the Jordan River. And then one-third of those forces are with his son in Gibeah. Again, that's Saul's hometown. And they're with Jonathan, Saul's son. So uh, the Philistines, they're watching all of this. The Philistines, they know what's going on. They always find out. And they, the Philistines, who are they? The Philistines are a seafaring people who had migrated to Palestine a few centuries before. They maintained control of the low plains along the Mediterranean coast. And during the time of Saul, they were apparently quite powerful and had established several military outposts throughout the land of Israel. So here, here's Israel. The Israelites are living in their ancestral land but they're not really in charge. The Philistines have power over the entire region, and that's the situation that Israel finds himself, th themselves in. And actually, in between Gibeah, where Saul is from, and where a thousand soldiers are with Jonathan, and Michmash, where Saul has taken 2,000 soldiers, in between these two cities, there's this little military outpost that's controlled by the Philistines, and that's called Geba. And what Jonathan does is... Uh, he, he kind of sallies forth with a platoon of special forces and he attacks this tiny garrison and he either assassinates the governor or the, the commander there or he just defeats the whole thing. But either way, what Jonathan does in attacking this place is he, he kind of kicks a huge beehive. Like the Philistines, are, are, they have the garrison there because they want to have control over all the different cities surrounding that garrison. And so when Jonathan goes and defeats that garrison, he's, he's kind of waking up the sleeping giant, so to speak. Uh, it, it's kind of like today if uh, Taiwanese sailors boarded uh, a Chinese ship and killed the captain. It would be a huge international deal. And that's what Jonathan does. And so the newspapers go out the next day. And, and Saul, he gets the credit because he's the king. And he knows that the hammer is about to fall and 3,000 troops are not nearly enough. So he sends word to the entire nation. And, and what he says is, Hebrews, pay attention. Now, Hebrews in Old Testament times, that is what the children of Israel were called by their enemies. So here's what Saul's doing. He's saying, hey, 12 tribes of Israel, all, we're all different. We all come from different clans and families. But we have one thing in common. The Philistines want to kill us all. And so, you Hebrews, let's, you know, get ready for this big battle because it's coming. They're going to come after all of us. So then Saul leaves Michmash. He sets up a rendezvous point in Gilgal. That's one of Israel's favorite meeting points. I know it's not familiar to you, but it's very familiar to them. And so there he is. And he's joined by a bunch of volunteers who would very much like to protect their land. And it's a good thing he left when he did because immediately after Saul leaves Michmash, the Philistines show up in that very same city and they've got 30,000 chariots, thousands of horsemen, and countless troops. This amazingly huge fighting force. Can you imagine? And so here's what's going on. Jonathan stirs, the hornets, he, he stirs up the hornet's nest. Saul runs to Gilgal to buy time to scrape together a decent fighting force. The Philistines get ready to crush them all. And what are the people of Israel doing? They're scattering. They're, they're terrified. Some of them are crossing the river to get to a safe place. Some of them are hiding in holes. 
And then the, the bravest few are following Saul, and they're literally shaking because they're so afraid. It's every man for himself at this point. And they're all polishing their axes and pitchforks. Uh, you re keep reading in this chapter, the only people who have real weapons in Israel at this time are Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else has pitchforks and, and axes and, and scythes, farming implements. And they're camped at Gilgal. They know any day the Philistines could swoop in and crush them. But Saul, he goes out to the camp and he looks out to all these farmhands and he says, you know what, guys, we've got to wait. And they wait one day, two days, three days. They wait seven days. Nothing happens. Saul is getting antsy. He looks at his watch. He looks out at the people. The longer they wait, the more people talk. Soon some of them start to pack up their knapsacks and leave. First one or two, then a dozen, then several dozen, then hundreds start to leave. And yet Saul waits the full seven days, and at the end of the seven days, he says, you know what, I've waited long enough, bring the burnt offering. And he offers the burnt offering in, in uh, Gilgal in order to seek God's favor. And just as the smoke from the altar is beginning to clear, finally, an old man wearing a prophet's robe arrives and it's Samuel. Saul goes out to meet him, and he has one question. Saul, what have you done? So clearly, Saul has done something wrong. What was it that Saul did wrong? What is so bad about this? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like when you really read this passage, like what is the big deal about what Saul has done? This is normal in the ancient Near East. Before you go to battle, this is what the king does. You make sure that the gods are happy with you. You say, well, the problem is Saul is not a priest. That's what I thought when I began to study this passage in depth. Saul's not a priest. He's a king. He's not allowed to offer a sacrifice. Well, uh, that would make sense. But according to the next chapter, the Levitical priests are actually with Saul at this time. What's more, if you fast forward to the time of David and Solomon, both David and Solomon are said to have offered sacrifices, and in their case, they are commended for it. So there's some complications there. By the way, Samuel isn't a priest either. Remember, he comes from a Levitical family, but he's not one of the uh, sons of Aaron, so he's not a priest either. So what's going on? The, the issue isn't so much Saul's office, it's something else. And what we have to do is we have to read between the lines a little bit and keep in mind the context. What did Samuel say, those of you who were here last week, what did he say at the end of chapter 12? He said, uh, if you obey the voice of the Lord, remember this, if you and your king obey the voice of the Lord, you're going to be blessed. If you disregard the voice of the Lord, you don't fear the Lord, you don't obey the Lord, then the Lord's going to be against you and your king. And Samuel says, and I have a, I have a, a role in this too. He says, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to instruct you in the good and the right way. And that's where we left it last week. So if I consider the context, Saul's mandate is clear. Obey the Lord's command, and how am I going to know what the Lord's command is? God's prophet is going to tell me. Samuel's going to tell me. He's going to instruct me in the good and the right way. So what Saul is going to do, apparently it was the Lord speaking through Samuel who had commanded Saul to wait, and what he was supposed to wait for was for instructions from the Lord about how to engage those Philistines in battle, and he just didn't want to wait anymore. What happens is Saul, instead of looking to the Lord with the eyes of faith, 
he begins to look around him at the things that he can see with his eyeballs. And those things that he can see with his eyeballs begin to look a little bit more fearsome and important than what he knows to be true about God, and he decides accordingly. He knows he needs the favor of the Lord, but he decides he doesn't need the word of the Lord. So he moves forward without God's prophet, instructing him in the way that he should go. So that brings us to the exchange between Saul and Samuel in verses 11 and following. Saul completes the sacrifice. There, Samuel. Saul, what have you done? And in Saul's response, we find three reasons why we tend to disobey the word of the Lord. Why do we do this? Here's reason number one. Reason number one, we feel alone. We feel alone. Did you catch what Saul said? The people were scattering from me. It's not hard to sympathize with Saul at this point, is it? Can you imagine being in Saul's shoes? His scouts come back from Michmash. Hey, Saul, FYI, there are 30,000 chariots. We couldn't even count all the foot soldiers. There are so many of them. They are going to crush you, Saul. By the way, Saul, do you know how many of us have swords? Just you and your son. That's it. None of it. We're all, we got shovels. Okay, I get it. Thank you. You are dismissed. And Saul's sitting there, and he's brooding in his tent, and he walks out that afternoon to survey the troops, and what he sees is just this demoralized multitude of farmers huddled around their fires, and he watches day after day as the number of tents dwindles in Gilgal. The people are scattering. Where's Samuel? I need to act. I'm a leader. I can't just wait and see. Let's go. And Saul waits as long as he feels like he can, and then he skips ahead of the Lord, and he makes a decision. If you're going to guard against disobedience, you need to understand the powerful pull of the lie of loneliness. I am alone. That's what we feel, and it shakes us to our core. Kids, listen to me. Children, the more time you spend with, uh, away from your parents and your siblings, the older you get, the more important it's going to be that you feel like you're surrounded by people who agree with you, that you feel like you're on, on somebody's team. And if you feel like you're alone, it doesn't feel good, and we feel like we have to respond to that. And guess what? There are going to be times when God asks you to do something, and what God tells you to do is going to be different from what your friends want to do, and you are going to feel alone. And that's hard. That's difficult. That is a powerful force in our lives, but God expects us to obey, even during those times when we feel alone. I'm convinced this is one of the reasons why sexual confusion among the, uh, our culture has become increasingly normal, even among the people of God. Uh, I remember years ago learning uh, about a book that had been published by uh, a young man about my age who professed to be a gay Christian. Uh, he argued, I don't remember what the book was called, but he argued in it that it was completely healthy and right for him to have a monogamous marital relationship with another man. So long as he was faithful to that one person. You say, how can you defend that from Scripture? Well, frankly, you can't. But here's how he argued. He, his argument was basically this. Hey, if I have to resist this tendency I see within myself, I will be completely alone. 
I will be cut off from the kind of intimacy that all these heterosexual couples enjoy. That can't work for me, so I feel alone, and therefore I must disobey. Teenagers, this is the rationale you and many of your friends are going to be tempted to follow. I know it's wrong for me to date that guy. I know it's wrong for me to give in to my attraction to people of the same sex, but if I don't, I will be alone. You're following the same logic that Saul follows here. Friends, it's a lie. Saul wasn't alone. He was being tested. He was forced to choose between what he could see and what he could know only by faith, and he chose not to trust the Lord. So, friends, I just want to encourage you to challenge you to obey God even when you feel that you are alone, even when you are isolated. David says this in Psalm 27.10. He says, even when my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Don't be like Elijah. You remember what Elijah did? He felt like he was the only one, so he ran away from what God wanted him to do, and God in his grace and in his patience came to Elijah, and he said, you're not alone. By the way, this is one of the many, the, one of the many blessings of, of being a part of the local church. Don't give in to the lie of the devil that you are alone. You're not alone. God's spirit comes alongside you. God's people join with you in striving for holiness. You are not alone. You are here. We, we see you. We love you. We're glad you're here. We want to strive with you, as hard as it is, in our obedience to the Father. That's reason number one. We feel alone. Here's the second reason Saul gives. We feel anxious. We feel anxious. Saul says, Samuel, you didn't come within the days appointed. You didn't come, Samuel. I waited and I waited and you didn't come. In other words, Saul is growing anxious because God is not operating on the timetable that Saul is operating on. Have you ever been through that? Isn't that one of the reasons we often disobey? God's timetable is different from our timetable. You know, I can't tell you how many times as I've talked with you about the struggles that you have, and the difficulties that you face, and the decisions that you're, you're, you're just up at night thinking about, I, I can't tell you how many times they boil down to this one issue. God is operating on a different timetable than you are operating on. That's hard. Like you had plans to retire and take a lot of missions trips, but then your mom got sick and needed to move in with you, and you can see your chances slipping away. And you're growing anxious because God's timetable isn't your timetable. Or you really wanted to buy that house in order to show hospitality to the people that God brings into your life. And God is making you wait because of your financial situation. And you're tempted to take on a level of debt that you know is sinful and not right. But you're anxious and God's timetable is different from your timetable. You've always thought you'd be married by now. Time is slipping away from you. You're questioning whether maybe your standards of character and godliness have been too high. You're growing anxious because God's timetable is not your timetable. Here's the point. This is another lie. The lie is that your timetable is the standard. Folks, it's not. That's like telling your toddler that their timetable for when their nap should be over is the timetable that you're going to go off of. Some of you actually do that. Bless your heart. <laughs> I don't know how you survive. Dad, nap time should be over by now. Son, it's been six minutes. 
Go back to bed. Toddlers don't know what six minutes means. They're toddlers. Uh, try to tell them when they're going to be going on vacation to see grandma this summer and, and explain how long it's going to be. They just don't get it. They don't have the concept of time that you have. Their perspective is, is just not able to, to grasp it. Now, listen, who has a bigger gap in understanding? Is there a bigger gap between you and your toddler or a bigger gap between you and your God? So yeah, there are going to be times when his timetable is different from yours. You still have to obey. Reason number one, we feel alone. Reason number two, we feel anxious. By the way, there's going to come a time when you agree with God's timetable. Here's reason number three. We feel afraid. We feel afraid. Saul says the Philistines are mustering at Michmash. He sort of states the obvious, like, have you heard the reports? 30,000 chariots, hello? Do you have any idea what these guys are going to do to me when they decide to march down here to Gilgal? I am the king. I'm not just some guy. They don't just shoot the king in the head and that's the end of my life. No, they take their time. He was afraid. We respect people when they have courage, but we all know what it's like to be afraid. And so being afraid becomes a very valid excuse in our way of thinking for disobedience. If I do what's right, people are going to leave the church. If I do what's right, my wife is going to make me pay for it. If I do what's right, I could lose my job. I could lose my kids. I could lose my comforts. I could lose my future. I could lose my life. I am afraid. Sometimes the Philistines and their thousands of chariots seem a lot more fearsome than the God of the universe. But once again, this reason is based on a lie. Those Philistines are like ants from God's perspective. Ironically, part of the reason why we fear our circumstances or those who oppose us in the world, one of the reasons why we are afraid of these things is because we are not fearing God, right? Like we've got a small God. And that is why our teenager's opinion of us is more important than God's opinion of us. That's why uh, our stock portfolio is more of a source of anxiety and fear than what God loves or hates. If Saul would have obeyed the voice of Samuel in chapter 12 and walked in the fear of the Lord, he wouldn't have been so gripped by the fear of the sword. And so he finds himself in the grip of these three reasons. I'm alone, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, so I forced myself. And that leads us to our second R. The second R is replacement. Replacement. Notice how Saul doesn't merely disobey. He offers a replacement for obedience. Look at verse 12. He says, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So he doesn't obey, but he feels that perhaps God would accept something in place of obedience. Did you catch what he's doing? I'll do the sacrifice. I just don't want to do it the way God is asking me to do it, and maybe God will be okay with that. What a revealing choice. Saul's view of God is on full display here, isn't it? 
It is so easy for us to treat the creator God like the gods of this world, as if all he wanted is just a little bit of credit every once in a while and and maybe a, a burning carcass, you know? This is treating, it really, here's what we're doing when we do this. We're treating God as if he were an animal. I mean, if, you, if he were like a camel or a, one of Saul's favorite horses, you know, you don't care, you don't worry about uh, what your camel thinks, right? I've never had a camel, I'm assuming. I don't obey my camel. <laughs> but no, you say, well, I've got a long journey tomorrow, so I'm going to take care of my camel. I'm going to make sure he gets some of his favorite food and drinks lots of water because I need him tomorrow. This is the way we treat God. Notice as well how this fits in with Saul's character. He's the king who looks good from the standpoint of his appearance, but beneath that appearance is disobedience. He's tall, he's strong, and now look, he's religious. He's devoted to the deity. What a good-looking king. But the appearance of religious devotion and ritual is no substitute for actual obedience. We do all sorts of things that make us look spiritual, that make us look good, that even convince ourselves, but our heart may or may not be in those things. And how do we know? Are we obeying? You might be wearing a cross necklace, but that doesn't mean you've actually taken up your cross Your walls might be plastered with Bible verses, but that doesn't mean that your heart is filled with the Word of God. Your attendance on Sundays might be impressive, but what are are you actually obeying what you hear? You might be the most religious person you know, but religion and ritual are no replacement for obedience. You know, I think about the way that we approach corporate worship in the church. This is this is I'm, I'm telling you, this is how I tend to approach it. I have the privilege of being able to be turned on during the sermon because I'm the one that has to preach. But when I'm not the one preaching, this is what I tend to do. Maybe you do this too. We come to church, we close our eyes, we sway back and forth, we feel the emotion of the service, we enjoy the music, we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit, we feel the pulse and just let it wash over us. But then it's time for the sermon. It's time to hear from God's word and we think, okay, now... I need to actually check my email on my phone. Time to tune out. Because the, it's so easy. We want to replace obedience with something religious. Say, Jake, it's your job to get our attention. And that is fair. I, I know what my job is. And I know I'll never be anything but a, a clay jar holding a priceless treasure. But if you think that attending to the word of God is anything like a spectator sport, then you're hurting yourself. It's an active act of worship. You, know, you, you want to know why we don't have more vibrancy in our walk with Christ? Why we don't see revival? Why we read about the, great, the, 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 the swell of, of spiritual renewal in years gone by or in places far away? And we don't see the same thing in our backyard? It may just be that we've replaced attention on the word of God with something else. Well, let me ask you, what are you replacing obedience with? Volunteering in Awana, going on a missions trip, teaching an equipping class, serving as a deacon, preaching on a Sunday morning, giving up your career to be a pastor, all those are great things. But they're no replacement for obedience. And in Saul's case, he doesn't get it, and that leads to Samuel's word of judgment and our third R. Reasons, we saw three reasons for disobedience. Replacement, Saul replaced obedience with ritual and religion. 
And then thirdly, result. Result. Notice with me the result of, of disobedience. Samuel says in verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. In other words, Saul is still king for now. But his kingdom isn't going to last. It might end when he dies. It might end when Jonathan, his son, dies. It might end when Jonathan's son dies. At this point, we don't know. All we know is his kingdom isn't going to last forever. So this is the result of Saul's disobedience. By the way, he's going to do something else later in a few chapters that kind of makes his, his result more immediate. But for now, this is what happens. And as excusable and understandable as we might feel like Saul's choice is, here's the result. And in order for us to really grasp what's taking place here, we need to kind of zoom out and consider Saul's role uh, in terms of all of Scripture. You see, Saul isn't just a guy. He's a king. He's God's king. That means he is the covenant head of the people of God. He is the person who represents and rules the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, which means that in a sense, he's intended to rule and represent God, not just for Israel, but for all the peoples of the earth, if you take all the Bible together. What I mean to say is that we need to keep in mind that Saul is taking the very same role here as Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 2 and 3? God creates Adam and Eve because he wants to share himself with an obedient son. He wants to rule over creation through the regency of an image bearer who represents him obediently. And in the beginning of the Bible, God presents Adam with a test in, in Genesis chapter 3. He tests him. He blesses him with everything he needs. He places him in authority over all creation. And then Adam is tested. He says, uh, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. That's the test. And uh, so we're left asking, is he going to lead his uh, the, the other people in his life, his wife, Eve, is he going to fold under the pressure? Is he going to subdue the beasts of the earth? Or is he going to reverse the order of creation and listen to them? And in those early chapters of Genesis, what do we find? We find that Adam is not that obedient son. He disobeys. He fails the test. He's not the perfect image bearer that God desires and that plunges all of Adam's descendants, all of us, all of creation into the depths of curse and judgment. But God makes a promise. Eve's going to give birth to a descendant who's going to strike down Satan and set everything right. And now fast forward to King Saul. He, he is a guy, here's a guy, who's staring down the seed of the serpent, these Philistine enemies. He's about to face off with them. And he's chosen by God. He's gifted with leadership. He's equipped with the word of God. He's empowered by the spirit of God. He's blessed to have a prophet to help him do this. And God allows him to go through a test, just like Adam. Is Saul going to be the obedient son? What about when God says to stand alone? What about when God's timeline makes him anxious? What about when he can hear the clang and the slash of the swords and the spears and he's afraid? What I'm saying is that our takeaway needs to be more than, well, I shouldn't be like Saul. I should obey. No, we've got to go a little deeper than that. The issue is that in order for me to have a covenant relationship with a faithful God who keeps his promises and never stops loving and leading his people, a God who is going to restore all things in order for me to be right with a God who is righteous and holy, I must 
be represented and ruled by an obedient son who is God's chosen king. Saul. He's not that guy. And that means that the result of Saul's disobedience is far more tragic than if it just affected him. This is a blow to all of God's people. By extension, it's a blow to all the peoples of the earth, including you and me. And we're left looking again for a king who qualifies to lead. If Saul is our best chance, or if someone like Saul is our best chance, then friends, we're toast. And to be honest, none of us is any better than Saul, are we? I mean, he's the best of the best. You let your lonesomeness and your anxiety and your fear draw you into disobedience too, so do I, but God is going to hold us to the standard. He wants an obedient son, but the good news, if I can be a little silly for a moment, the good news is that there aren't just three R's in this passage, there are four R's, and so here's our fourth R, remedy. There's a remedy, because even though Adam failed the test and Saul failed the test, That wasn't all God had to say through Samuel. He says, the end of our passage, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. As you read on in 1 Samuel, you're going to see that David is, in a sense, that guy. King David. But then, before long, even David fails the test. And it's not until centuries later, David's heir, his greater son, born of a virgin in David's city, is going to arrive on the scene and be worshipped as a king. And as a king, he isn't going to do what Adam did. He isn't going to do what Saul did when he is tested, when he is alone, when, he, when the days stretch out in the wilderness, when he, is, when he has reason to be afraid, he doesn't bend, he doesn't break, he walks in obedience to everything the Father commands, and he will prove to be the king we need, the obedient son who perfectly rules and perfectly represents the Father, who does battle with the enemy in the desert and emerges victorious. This is our king. Friend, God's standard is righteous, but it's beyond your reach. And yet there is a king, a covenant head, a savior who showed himself to be the obedient son of God. And if you're going to have life, if you're going to have forgiveness, if you're going to be rescued from eternal punishment, if you're going to be right with God, who, the God who made you, then you must believe in him and him alone. No one else. Nobody else can save You will not get there on your own because you're not that obedient son. You're no more capable than Saul to be the obedient child of God. You must be rescued by another. And I just want to ask, how long, how long are you going to resist? How long are you going to dig your heels in? How long are you going to depend on yourself? How long are you going to Uh, how long are you going to resist the invitation of God to step down from the throne of your life and let him have first place? How long are you going to try to ride the fence to say that there's still time to decide? Friends, if 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 you're trusting in your own obedience, you're doomed. God is right to require perfect obedience, and you cannot provide it. The only way, your only hope, is to be ruled and represented by a perfect king, the king that God chose, 
Confess your need of forgiveness. Humble yourself before Almighty God and believe that King Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live, died the death that you deserve to die, and rose again to bring with him a people who are brought into the family of God. I, I hope that that becomes true of you today. We pray that it becomes true of you today. Would you bow with me now and let's pray once more. Father, this passage sheds light on your requirements. You require obedience. And though in our worldly way of thinking we make excuses for disobedience, the truth is that there are no excuses. And so, Lord, we're, we're hopeless on, on our own, and, and we need someone to obey for us. We need a king. We want to thank you that you provided Jesus as that king. Lord, we pray that it's during this time of response that your spirit would be working to draw people to yourself and that each one of us would obey. And uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name.